have your Bibles, Mark 13, I will not ask you to stand, I'm going to read it all, because it is an extended passage of scripture, but I do pray that you will receive it as the word of the Lord, which it is. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be delivered Excuse me, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days, and then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And that is my request as well as I preach this morning. Stay awake. Okay. <laughs> um, this is, as I said, an extended passage of Scripture. And my intention this morning is not to uh, preach it in sermon form per se, uh, just to take a look at this passage and to consider it in a broad sense, in light of what we're learning as Pastor John takes us through the book of the Revelation uh, in more detail. But this certainly does tie in with that, and uh, I ask your prayers as I uh, lead us through this this morning, sort of a, a jet tour through Mark chapter 13, if you will, and I'll try not to get into the weeds of things and just touch base on, on this. But I want to take you back first to what we looked at the last time I had the opportunity to share the scripture with you, and that was back in chapter 12. And we talked as we've gone through this, as I've had the privilege of preaching several times to you over the last few years, talked about the old covenant and how it was to prepare the way for Christ and the new covenant, the true salvation that that covenant brings. And in God's eternal purpose and plan, that involved the Jewish nation, ethnic Israel. But it extends far beyond them, and aren't we glad? It's why we're here this morning. So ultimately, the Christ came into the world as Abraham's descendant to bring salvation blessings to the nation. That's just a real fast summary of really what the Bible's talking about, that Jesus Christ was to come. And Paul summarizes that well in Romans 9, verses 4 through 5, where he begins that longer address in chapters 9 through 11 in Romans about how Israel fits into God's eternal purpose and plan of redemption. What about that old covenant with Israel? What about the Old Testament scriptures, which, by the way, aren't the old covenant. The old covenant's separate from that, but a part of the Old Testament scripture, and what about the New Testament, and we have all these questions, and what about the end times, and what's going to happen, and what should we be looking for, is there a sign, or many signs we're looking for, so that we know when Jesus is coming back, and the events of the past few years in our American culture, and in the world, cause people to wonder, what's going to happen, and in particular, what about Israel? But we know, as we read the scripture, that Christ fulfilled that covenant given by God to Moses, the old covenant, as the writer of Hebrews calls it. Christ fulfilled it that he might establish the new covenant, 
as the writer of Hebrews also calls it. So we have that contrast of old and new. Not that the old was entirely done away with, but that it was fulfilled. The righteousness that we lack under the old covenant, under the law, well, Christ provides. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. The death we deserve for sin under the law, for our unrighteousness, Christ suffers for us on the cross. The eternal life that the law promises but can never be achieved for us as sinners, it eludes us in our fallen state. The Lord Jesus secures by his resurrection. And so the believer is united in faith, by faith rather, to Christ in his person, in his work, if the old covenant was God's plan to redeem sinners, then it failed. But it wasn't his plan to redeem sinners. It was necessary that Christ might keep it in order to redeem us. But it was not God's plan because only Christ kept it. Only Christ lived a perfect life. Only Christ lives unto God. And if we are held to that standard, we sin and we fall short of the glory of God, right? And that's what Paul also says in the book of Romans. But in the new covenant, God does for us, through Jesus Christ, what we cannot do for ourselves. Our part is to trust him. And I hope that's why you're here this morning, because you trust in Jesus Christ. You look at yourself, and as Brother Stan prayed in the prayer about the tax collector in the temple, he, he said, God have mercy on me, the sinner that I am. He knew he was a sinner, and he looked to God for mercy. He understood something about the mercy and the grace of God, a promise of salvation, a promise of redemption that he could not achieve on his own. The Pharisee that was there with him in the temple believed that he had some kind of righteousness to offer. But Jesus said it was the tax collector broken because of his sin, broken under the law, and looking to God for mercy that went home justified in the sight of God. Our part is to trust Christ. Now, much to the dismay of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven, preaching salvation, and saying, repent, mourn for your sin, and believe the gospel, the good news of this salvation that God has promised. And I am the one who brings that to you. And so as Jesus has come to his public ministry here in the gospel of Mark, and Mark presents Jesus' ministry in a very rapid pace, what we read in, these, in this narrative is, is a far less wordy than what we read in Matthew or Luke or John about things in Christ's ministry. But one of the things that Mark is emphasizing 
to us all is that this is Jesus, the servant of the Lord. But not only the servant of God, but the king from heaven. And so when we came to the end of chapter 12, a couple of months ago, I believe it was, when we were going through that together, Jesus came, we saw, as the royalty of heaven. And he came bringing a heavenly righteousness, possessing that righteousness, rather. And he came bringing a heavenly reward of grace, or in grace, should I say, a heavenly reward of eternal life by the grace of God, not based on our merits, not based on our works. That's not the Messiah. That's not the Christ that, that the Jews, Jewish leaders in particular were looking for. And chapter 12 highlights the Jewish perspective of the old covenant that just ignored Christ altogether. It was a Christless religion. Oh, rooted and based in Scripture, if you will, but with all kinds of things added on top of it. It was moralistic, it was pietistic, it was legalistic, but it was hopeless. Hopeless. You remember that widow at the very end of chapter 12 there, and I encouraged you to look at that not in the way that we have traditionally looked at it in, in many uh, traditions of our faith, that it's some kind of example of sacrificial giving. No, the widow is the example of where you end up in a Christless religion. doesn't matter how much of the Bible you throw in there if Jesus Christ is not all in all then your sins are not forgiven, you are still in your sin, and you have no hope. And this poor widow, believing what the religious leaders of her day were telling her, and they were, as Jesus earlier said, they were the Pharisees and the scribes in particular would rob widows' houses. This is how they did it. They gave her their religion and said, and you need to support that, by the way, and took the last bit of money she had to live on. And Jesus closes in verse 44, they all, all the other people who were putting their money in the offering box in the temple that day, contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put everything she had in there, all that she had to live on. She gave it all. It was hopeless. She gave it all and received nothing. She gave everything that a human being could put into the equation. And she received nothing. Chapter 13 explains the reality of the kingdom in light of Christ's coming. And it's nothing like Judaism expected. Judaism was waiting the religious leaders were teaching the people there is a messiah coming but he's the kind of messiah that we want we want an earthly kingdom we want it to be centered focused on the jews we want to be in the place of highest honor with that messiah and he's not going to come and condemn us for our sins he's going to come and commend us for our goodness and righteous deeds and how wonderful we are as descendants of abraham 
and he'll usher in the golden age, the heavenly age. That's not the kingdom Jesus presents. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is fraught for the believer in this world with fraught with tribulation. But it's filled with hope through the gospel. And that being the case, then we have to ask the question, don't we? What happens to the Jewish people? What happens to them? Why the Jewish nation? Well, if I could just summarize that, I would say they're a, a microcosm, if you will, of the human race. There were a few among them that are true believers and believe God's promise of the gospel, the promise of Christ. But most of them did not and have not, as is the case in all the world. All of them were under the law and all had a promise of grace that they could heed and look to God for forgiveness and salvation. So when Jesus came, the Jews could either recognize Christ as the fullness of God's grace to sinners or they could ignore him and they could double down on their religion. What about you? Do you hear what God says in Scripture and accept the Christ that God presents here? Or do you have your religious beliefs and I'm just fine with that, thank you. You don't need to rock the boat. You don't need to uh, cause me to, to wonder. I believe Jesus is a good moral example, whatever, and uh, you know, I'm going to follow that. I'll keep the Sermon on the Mount. Very good luck with that to you. Um, but don't tell me that it's all of grace and none of me. Jesus was very clear when he dealt with the religious leaders. He had no, um, no patience with them. Well, I won't say no patience. Jesus was very patient with them. But he had no care for their false beliefs and false teaching, and he quickly condemned them for their self-righteousness. Because Judaism looked for an earthly Jewish-centered kingdom, as I said, it was apart from the biblical Christ. It rejected our Lord as expressed by the leaders. And back in chapter 12, at the beginning of the chapter, you'll remember that parable of the vineyard and the vine dressers who were charged with taking care of it, the vineyard was Israel, and the vine dressers were the religious leaders, and the, the owners sent several servants, and they beat them and killed some and would not give the portion that was due to the owner. And finally the son came, and they said, this is the heir, let's kill him, and the whole thing will be ours. And so that's what happened between the Jews and Christ. You say, well, when are we going to get to the good stuff here? You've blathered on for a while now, and you just read this whole chapter. Surely you're not going to keep us here until 2 o'clock. No. I promise I won't do that. A.D. 70 is a year you need to remember in the course of redemptive history. It is predicted here by Jesus as 
a time when something, although he doesn't give that date, he tells us what's going to happen and what did actually take place during that year. He predicts a determinate sign that God's kingdom was not merely an earthly one. It involved more than the Jews and more than just the old covenant. Okay? So like Matthew and Luke, Mark conveys that at this point in Jesus' ministry, our Lord teaches us what the church on earth should expect once Christ seals that new covenant with his blood on the cross. Once he is resurrected, once he ascends to his throne in heaven. Now that's not addressed here, but it's implied, and we know what comes after this in the passion of our Lord as he makes his way to the cross and his death there for sin, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. But what Jesus tells us here is what it will be like for his followers in this world until he returns. Old covenant being fulfilled, new covenant in full force and effect. So this is an overview. And it has two major points this chapter does, and I just want to, if you will, for you to make a mental note of these, because that's really what the whole chapter is about. The end of the Jewish age and Christ's return. The end of the Jewish age and Christ's return, it emphasizes an unknown amount of time in between the two of those. That time the scripture calls the last days. And when pastor is taking us through the book of Revelation, that's what the book of the Revelation is primarily explaining. These last days and a heavenly view of that as Christ our Lord is seated upon the throne. It's not a book about future events and signs that we need to look forward so that we can predict when Jesus comes back. Okay, Jesus is coming back. He says so here. But he says there's an end to the Jewish age and there's this period of time. We don't know how long it will be. And he puts some distance between the end of the Jewish age and his return in the language that he uses here. We are told that the Jewish age will be very obvious and that his return, the timing of that is unknown. So our Lord tells us in verses 1 and 2, or he predicts rather, a definite end to the age of the Jews, that is, the kingdom of God dealing, God dealing with the world, bringing his kingdom exclusively through the Jewish nation and all that that entailed. I encourage you to read Romans 9 through 11, and that puts things in a, in a, in a perspective for us there from a New Testament angle. And then in verses 3 through 13, Jesus identifies signs that characterize the last days as a time of ongoing tribulation, and evangelism. That is, we're going to experience persecutions, difficulties, just the natural, normal things of the fallen world on top of persecution for our faith as we are bearing witness for Christ. And then in verses 14 through 23, he identifies that Jewish tribulation, a very specific event in which Jerusalem and the temple 
in A.D. 70 are destroyed, according to Christ's prediction. And then in verses 24 through 27, it clarifies that Christ is on his throne. His elect are being gathered through the gospel, the preaching of the gospel in the last days. And then in verses 28 through 31, it gives a lesson of the fig tree regarding the end of the Jewish age as an identifiable sign marking the last days. And then finally, in verses 32 through 37, Christ gives a lesson of the unpredictable nature of his return and the need for diligence among his servants. Now, that's a very wordy outline. And because I have Baptist background, my inclination was to, you know, start everything with the letter C or some heading, all that alliteration, but I'm trying not to do that. But I just want us to look at each one of these sections in brief and touch on that. And I want you to keep in mind, Jesus has come, he's fulfilled the old covenant, he's established the new, the Jewish age is ending, the New Testament era is beginning, we don't know how long that will last, and Christ is coming back, and we don't know how that, when that will be. Okay? Verses 1 and 2. The disciples obviously assume that the kingdom of God would include the Jerusalem temple, right? Its system of worship, the Levitical priesthood, the offering of sacrifice and all of this, everything that was involved in that, and we won't go into detail. I believe most of us here are familiar enough with our Old Testament to know how the temple was laid out and the the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the priest only went once a year and then the holy place where the priest ministered regularly and then the temple proper and all of that. This leading us closer and closer to God as you go through those sections of the temple. They assume all this is going to be there. And this particular temple built by Herod was a massive structure, a massive compound, not just the temple Proper, but everything surrounding it, massive walls, massive stones, some of them, I think, four feet high, 16 feet wide, carved out of one piece, brought in, set up. This, this is a very ornate building overlaid, a lot of it with gold, a lot of offerings are expensive, offerings, artwork, and what have you probably were, were given to the temple as offerings, and it was placed and displayed in significant places around the compound. So this is a massive place and the Jews are impressed by it and they think, well, you know, this can't go away. And they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, as they're leaving Jerusalem, as he's entered it during the Passion Week, and they step out to the Mount of Olives where they've been staying the night and they're making their way out and they say, oh, Master, look at all the beautiful buildings. Isn't that just spectacular? And they weren't expecting what Jesus would say next. He describes the very opposite of what they thought. The very opposite of what they had been taught. That worship under the old covenant would no longer be a representation of the kingdom. Even the temple would be destroyed. Why? Because their king had come to them. And they rejected him. They failed 
to recognize and embrace Christ as the predicted fulfillment of the Old Testament, in particular the new, the Old Covenant, and thus to repent at his coming, to turn to him, to trust him as Savior under that new covenant, a covenant promised in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew all of this. They knew they should be expecting a Messiah. If they really knew their scripture, that's what they were looking for. And so the, the disciples are anticipating that, and Jesus said, nope, all of that's going away. When he arrived, they did not yield the faith they should have. Look back in chapter 11. Remember verses 20 through 25 there, 26 rather. Lesson of the fig tree, the parable of the fig tree we should call it there, or the withered fig tree. He curses that tree. It did not have fruit on it. He was expecting something of it. And there's that debate about whether it was the time for figs, but there were varieties of fig trees that did bloom at other times of the year and so forth. But if you'll recall that when we went through it, the whole point was Jesus came expecting faith, rightly so, and they did not have it, the nation as a whole. And so that is why judgment comes to them. That all has to be removed. It, people have to see that that has been fulfilled. That's, there's nothing about that that actually secured your salvation, but it pointed to the one who would, and now he's come, and, and you do not embrace him. So in light of the Old Testament with its shadows and types of Christ, they should have seen that if they had a heart of faith. So, back in chapter 13, they say, what about these wonderful buildings? Isn't that great? And Jesus said, it's all going to be turned down. Not one stone, not even one of those massive stones is going to be left one on top of the other. And then we come to verses 3 through 13. And the Lord predicts such a catastrophe or his prediction of that catastrophe rather led the disciples to see the temple's destruction as well maybe this is the end maybe maybe all that we're expecting about Jesus and come being in power and glory bringing the kingdom in power and glory maybe that's about to take place in fact in Matthew 24 verse 3 Matthew's account of this passage or of this incident they say Tell us when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. They say, well, the end of the age, the end of this present world, surely the, if the temple is going to be destroyed, that's the end of this world. That's it. And, and you're going to be here in power and glory, and we're going to see all this and be a part of it. So the wording of their question tells us a little bit about what they're expecting. But he says... Beware of false messiahs. In other words, beware of those who claim 
that they're coming in my name and that what you're expecting is what they're bringing. Don't listen to them. They will lead many astray, says Jesus. They will be deceivers. There were prior to Jesus, there were after Christ ascended and before the temple was destroyed, and there have been ever since. They are to be anticipated. They are to be avoided. And Jesus gives us his agenda for that purpose, so you'll know, right? Something I want you to, to remember, too, is this is where we are. This is why we're still here. The, this, is, this is what's taking place in the world. Jesus has told us about it. And we can have confidence in him. We can rest in him. And in his promises. So Jesus says, be on guard. And he places distance, as I said before, between Jerusalem's fall and his second coming in power and glory. And in this section, the Lord speaks of the ongoing reality of life in a fallen world. What are you going to find in this world that is tainted by the curse of sin? What will you find? Not only people trying to deceive you, but there will be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed, said Jesus. That must take place. The end is not yet. World, World War I. World War II. Everyone thought there couldn't be a worse war than World War I. Then there came World War II. And everybody thought, well, that's the, that's the war that will end it all and... We'll enter this great utopia. No. Didn't happen. Not going to happen. Jesus said it wouldn't happen. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. It has to take place. Nation will rise against nation. There will be conflict. Kingdom against kingdom. You're also going to have natural disasters like earthquakes and famines and any number of things. This is just a, in general. Jesus is saying you're living in a fallen world. That's the beginning of birth pains. You mothers know full well what birth pains are like. It's not the full labor. Not comfortable, but it's not the moment of giving birth, right? I can only speak to that as an observer. When my wife was having our first child and I was trained in, I think it was Lamaze class or whatever, to help her breathe. Some of you may have heard the story. I was telling her to breathe and breathe, and my eyes kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until she finally said, get out of my face. So I didn't really understand what labor was. But Jesus said, all these things you're going to experience in the world, that's just like labor pains. It's bad. It's not comfortable. You should be on guard. You should be aware of these things. Verse 9, be on your guard. There's more. They, those who are against you, will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake and bear witness, and the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. So see, there's... 
tribulation, there's hardship, but there's evangelism. Expect persecution. Expect religious persecution from councils and synagogues, he says. That's a reference to the religious authorities. Governors and kings, government authorities. But we're to bear witness, he tells us, for his sake. We aren't to be anxious. We're to speak, and we're to do that in the Holy Spirit, says Christ. And we're to even anticipate betrayal, even from our own family, possibly. Even from those who perhaps may be in our family in the local congregation who profess Christ, but they fall away. You're hated by all for my namesake, said Jesus. Remember what our Lord said in the Gospel of John? If they hated you, they hated me first. So we're to expect that. And yet, verse 13, we will persevere. The one who endures to the end will be saved. True believers will just weather the storm. But then verses 14 through 23... And there's the abomination of desolation. You hear that word thrown around a lot, particularly particularly at uh, what many call prophecy conferences. But it's a reference to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and in particular, the desecration of the Jewish temple prior to the time of Christ in around 168 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed swine on a pagan altar he erected in the most holy place and that was that was something the Jews never forgot but then Daniel earlier in his prophecy speaks in chapter 9 verses 25 through 27 speaks of the coming Messiah and he talks about another Abomination of desolation, if you will, the desolation that brings abomination. And we know that to be when the Roman general Titus sacked the temple in AD 70, desecrated it once more, and raised it to the ground, and not one stone was left upon another. Several historians from that era of history describe how horrific was the slaughter of the Jews. It was unparalleled. It it made people gasp to think that such a thing was done, even in the course of war. History also records that Christians in Judea did heed Jesus' words here. What does he tell us? One who's on the housetop, don't go down into the house. Don't enter the house. Don't take anything out. If you're out in the field, don't turn back to go get your cloak, your outer garment. If you're pregnant or nursing infants, oh, pray it doesn't come in winter. In those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And I am of the opinion that he's speaking expressly of this destruction of the temple and that slaughter, that massacre, that um, holocaust of the Jews. 
It was terrible. And Jesus said if the days weren't cut short, if the days weren't shortened, no one would survive. Even the Christians who have fled to the hills, who heeded Christ's warning here ahead of time and went into the mountains, they might not have survived had God not, God not been merciful and gracious and cut those days short. Because Titus was, was literally destroying the whole country in the southern part of the nation. And when he came to Jerusalem, millions had fled there by that time to avoid the advancing armies, and, and it was just complete slaughter of millions. So it was a horrible time. Christ describes that here. And then listen to what he says. False Christ and false prophets will arise, even at that time. And they're going to say, we offer you some hope. We offer you some safety in this perilous time. Jesus says, if you've survived that, don't listen to them. And the church, in large part, did not. So then verses 24 and 27 through 27, some see these exclusively dealing with some cosmic upheaval in certain eschatological um, views, views of the end time. Uh, they will look at it this way. I understand those. I used to hold to those positions. I do not anymore. I believe this is very, very clearly a statement of Jesus on his throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven and the gospel going forth and people coming into the kingdom. You say, why do you believe that? Well, because he says in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And if you'll recall, in Acts chapter 2, I believe it is, and Peter is preaching his first sermon there, he makes reference to that terminology given to us in the prophet Joel, and he tells us, he interprets that, the word of God interprets that passage from Joel to speak of the going forth of the gospel, particularly at the day of Pentecost. It was such an event, spiritually, that the world would not be the same after that. And so he uses that terminology there of, of cosmic proportions, if you will. And the heavens will be shaken and all this. God did something on the day of Pentecost to ensure that the gospel went forth that was, had never been done before. And then he says, they will see the Son of Man, verse 26, coming in clouds with great power and glory. And that's language straight out of the prophet, of, prophet Daniel as well, where Christ Jesus is coming before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, to receive his kingdom. And that terminology is used to describe the glory of Christ as he comes and receives the kingdom at the right hand of the Father. I think it's, it's very clear. 
that that's what our Lord has in mind. I don't think you can just take what this is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is teaching it from the Mount of Olives. Some, I think some call it a mini-apocalypse mini or something like that. But what Jesus is, is, he's not telling us about things to look for at the end of time. He's telling us about what's going on right now so that you'll have confidence, so that you'll continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, as Acts chapter 2 tells us, and that you'll be faithful in that, bearing witness of Christ until he returns, because you don't know when he's coming back. You say, well, how do you know this is about the gospel going forth? Well, look at verse 27. He'll send out the angels, and the word angel means messenger. Pastor John's been making reference to that quite often as he goes through the book of the Revelation. It means messenger. There were the angels of the seven churches that were probably the pastors of the seven churches or the messengers of the seven churches. We are the messengers of God. Christ has been talking about bearing witness. And the messengers, the angels, are sent out by Christ and what does verse 27 say they will gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven from all over the world people are going to come into the kingdom so the imagery there taken from Joel's prophecy interpreted by Peter in Acts chapter 2 and then from Daniel chapter 7 Christ receiving his kingdom and power and glory. All of this gives us encouragement knowing that Christ is coming back, but until then, we're to expect these things and we're to be busy about the work of the kingdom. Then quickly in verses 28 through 31, Jesus gives the what we'll call the lesson of the fig tree. Your, your Bible may tell, tell you that at the the heading there that it gives in that particular passage. It's not a parable, really, or a lesson as such as it was back in chapter 11. There's no real tie between the fig tree here to the nation of Israel. In fact, in Luke's account, it says the fig tree and all other trees. There's just a lesson to be learned by the trees when the leaves begin to bud. What do you know? Well, it's spring and summer's not far away, right? And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying in the same way when you see Jerusalem fall, as I'm predicting, the beginning of the last days are initiated. And you know that my coming is not far off. You're in the last days, but you just don't know how long those last days will continue. We just know until Christ returns. So verses 32 through 36, there's that very observable fall of Jerusalem, and there now is the very indiscernible amount of time before Christ returns. There's no sign about Jesus' return. There's not some headline that you're waiting to see in the newspaper or on your newsfeed, on your iPhone, that you're going to look at that one day and say, oh, 
Well, it's about to happen. Jesus is coming. No. Jesus said, definitely, when Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed and not one stone is left upon another, you know that the last days have begun, that the Old Testament era is over, the Old Covenant fulfilled, the Jewish age is over. And you know for certain that I'm coming again. But here's all these things that are going to take place during that time, and you need to be faithful. Verse 32, concerning that day or that hour that is of his coming, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. You don't know when that time will come. Christ's return, the time is not discernible. We're in the last days, but we can't know when that day will come. So Jesus is clear. Only the Father knows that. Not even the Son. The angels of heaven don't know it. The angels, his messengers on earth don't know it. Not angelic beings, but human beings who are his messengers. We who represent him, we don't know it. Only the Father knows Christ, even in his incarnation, in his humanity, is limited in his knowledge. He knows what the Father has given him, and yet in his deity, he is omniscient. Human nature, divine nature, in one person, it is mysterious. But those two are never mixed, and yet they exist in our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Father, listen, through the Son is revealing to us these things. So Jesus said to his disciples in Acts 7, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So you can take a deep breath and relax. You don't have to try to figure out anything about when Jesus is coming back. You don't have to know that to warn people about the wrath to come. You don't have to know that at all to tell them that bad news and then to give them the good news. That though you are a sinner with no hope of eternal life of your own making, there is someone. There is the Son of God He has come. He has fulfilled the law. He has died the death you deserve for not keeping the law. He's been raised from the dead and ever lives to the Father. And God says, by faith in my Son, you are united to him so that his righteousness is yours, his death is yours, his resurrection is yours. All Jesus tells us in regard to the end times, is be on your guard, keep awake, keep proclaiming the gospel. And that's what we'll do as we observe the Lord's table. Every time we do it, we're remembering what Christ has done, and we're, we are partaking of it by faith. As I said before, your part in the new covenant is to trust Christ. 
And that's what you're doing. It is a sign and a seal. Points us to Christ and what he has done. It guarantees, it assures us of what he has done. Now the book of Revelation of Christ pulls back the veil, allows us to see this New Testament era between Christ's ascension and his second coming from heaven's perspective. It allows us to see the spiritual reality behind what we observe in the course of human history until Jesus returns, and it assures us that God's grace toward us in Christ endures through this time of tribulation and evangelizing the lost in this world and on into the next. That's where we are in human history. I hope that helps you. I hope you can settle there and not be anxious when you hear the news, that you'll focus on this good news that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. What a comfort, what an encouragement to know that what we are experiencing is precisely what Jesus predicted. And we can say with the Apostle Paul, this is momentary light affliction. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father, it is good that we can go through your word and we can understand things in the right perspective because our Lord Jesus has given it to us not in some mysterious form but this is what's been revealed for us and our children that we might know it and so we just thank you that we can have confidence in your purpose and plan and that Christ our Lord is seated at your right hand and that he reigns victorious and that we are but messengers proclaiming the good news that we ourselves have embraced by faith, that we are partakers in this new covenant where Jesus has done everything for us and we rest in him. We thank you, O Lord, for this comfort from your word this morning and pray now as we partake of the Lord's table that we will do it with understanding and with gladness of heart and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.